Hello, and welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Longtime listeners, you know I typically like to cover lesser-known cases, and this is one of those. I'm sure you all know I have no expertise in psychology, law, or law enforcement. I'm just a storyteller. In many good stories, there's a villain, and an often-asked question is, how did the villain become evil, or have they always been that way? What makes a hero? The same question could be asked. Is a hero born that way, or was it a path chosen by them and those around them? Today's case features a citizen hero and several law enforcement heroes, and of course, a villain. But before we dive in, I'd like to thank a few personal heroes, you listeners. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing the podcast with friends. I'd especially like to thank Jess Lindsay from the U.S., who says, Very captivating, five stars. I've just started this podcast because it started playing after the series I was listening to ended. Immediately, I was drawn in by her voice, and then I kept listening, not knowing what I was listening to until I grabbed the phone to see. I've been listening for hours now, and it's just drawn me in. It's so good. The way she shares the stories is so detailed, but delicate. I'm hooked. Thank you so much, Jess. I appreciate it. I'd also like to thank a uh, Canadian listener, Tarzo44, who says, I love the unique stories, the focus of this podcast, as well as the fact that the podcast focuses on the story instead of a ton of unrelated talking between hosts. Well, thank you so much. I definitely can't have any talking between hosts since it's just me. (laughs) Thank you both so much for taking the time to write a review. It's very much appreciated. All right, let's get on with the show. Leo Boatman had not had an easy life. He was born on July 20, 1986, in a Florida mental institution. His mother was admitted there on an extended stay, during which time Leo was born. No one knows who his father is. The Department of Children and Families removed Leo from his mother's care when he was an infant. His grandmother was ordered to take him in, but she often took him back to his mother when she couldn't handle him. When he was eight years old, his mother died. She was known to heavily abuse drugs and alcohol. One day, after overindulging, she passed out in a ditch and drowned. After her death, Leo Boatman was placed in foster care and bounced around from home to home. He hated life as a foster child, and specifically he spoke of his hatred of an abusive foster father he had lived with during his adolescence. The man was said to have disciplined the boys he was in charge of by making them do 10,000 jumping jacks, while he'd sit there watching TV and drinking beer. Of course, the boys never finished the 10,000 jumping jacks, but that was the point. They'd tire themselves out and fail. I have to admit I've used push-ups and jumping jacks for my kids, but 20 is the most I've doled out for bad words or sass. They come by the sass and bad words honestly. I'm pretty sure I'll have to assign myself some push-ups and sit-ups or something by the end of this podcast. When the boys in the homes got in serious trouble, they were made to sit naked on a towel to keep them from running away. Leo Boatman claimed that the few gifts he received from his foster families, like headphones, were taken away as punishment. He also spoke of sexual abuse by an older male relative of his primary foster father. In regard to one of his homes, there was verified abuse reports of bizarre punishments, failure to protect, inadequate supervision, beatings, excessive corporal punishment, mental injury, and inappropriate and excessive isolation. His foster parents' home was eventually closed because of those reports. 
Boatman said many of the other boys who had been placed there ran away and went to juvenile detention and eventually prison. As bad as this was, his most bitter feelings were not towards the family. Instead, he aimed his bitter feelings towards the five years he spent at Omega, which was a juvenile prison in Bradenton, Florida. It has since closed. He entered that facility at age 14 and remained there until the age of 19. He claims he was the longest-serving boy who stayed there. When speaking on the topic of Omega, he said the guards made the biggest difference over the years he was there. The facility went from strict discipline like it was supposed to be to guards who would pounce, yell, and slam boys into walls. He claimed to be taunted by guards who would read his medical records and who would shout personal things at him like, no one wants you anymore. According to Boatman, the boys in Omega slept in separate cells on concrete bunks and the guards enjoyed the abuse. They'd beat the crap out of boys for talking and other minor infractions like not raising your hand in class or moving your eyes when in detention. Leo Boatman's upbringing was deplorable, and if you looked at his juvenile records, you would see the history of abuse and abandonment. This was a man who was forced to fend for himself literally, since he was a toddler. His juvenile records would show that he routinely got in trouble with staff at the juvenile detention center. In 2001, he went up to a teacher's desk knocking items off it before slamming his forehead into his teacher's face. This resulted in cutting her lower lip. A month later, he was caught stealing prescription drugs, and a month after that, he punched and threatened a pregnant case manager. He was only 15 years old at the time. His punishment was to spend two months in solitary confinement. That's where he claims to have snapped, saying, you can't do that to a boy, unless you want to make him into an animal. Years later, at the age of 19, he would be released from the foster care system and became a part of the so-called real world. When he was released from Omega, his sister Rosie didn't show up to pick him up, so the chaplain drove him to her Clearwater apartment. Once there, she didn't answer the door or the phone. The chaplain left him there with a $20 bill, and hours later, Rosie finally opened the door. When she did, she told Boatman that she'd been arrested again. It was her third time for driving with a suspended license. She asked him for money to hire a lawyer. A few weeks later, he would sign over his first checks from the state to Rosie. A short time later, Leo Boatman moved into a trailer with his uncle Vic, who'd been recently released from jail. Boatman would describe the trailer as a little tin can. On the plus side, he had a job at Hooters and had plans to rent a real apartment for the two of them. He had received some vouchers for new clothing and had enrolled in college. He was excited about his life at this time. He was dating a girl from his workplace at the same time as he was dating a stripper he'd recently met. He even found a motorcycle that he wanted and put a down payment on it. But he crashed it before his Uncle Vic had given him the lessons his uncle had promised. Suddenly, Boatman had a change in attitude. Now he's feeling depressed and victimized by his relatives, who seemed happy to take his money, but he felt like they gave little in return. He began thinking of a life where he could take care of himself alone in the wilderness. He decided it was time to get away and do a little camping. He was tired of his family sponging off him. The state had recently initiated a program to help provide financial support to foster kids aging out of care, especially those attending college. So the state sent him $800 a month to help with rent and tuition. 
Boatman had signed up for classes, but his money was going so quickly, it was starting to tick him off. His family was also giving him grief about wrecking his new motorcycle. He decided he had to get away. He didn't have a license, but he was determined to get some time alone, so on January 2nd, he hopped on a Greyhound bus and made his way from Clearwater to Ocala, Florida. At 2 a.m. on the morning of January 3rd, 2006, he was seen buying $391 worth of camping gear at a Walmart in Silver Springs. He then caught a cab and was taken to Juniper Springs Recreation Area in the Ocala National Forest. The Ocala National Forest was a popular camping place, and he wasn't the only one headed that direction. A young couple who had met at the Santa Fe Community College were planning a camping trip at the same time. They were both members of a program called Students for Environmental Harmony. John Parker, at age 26, had more experiences in his short life than many other people do. He'd already served two tours of duty in Afghanistan as a Marine. He returned home, eager to be more of a father figure to his eight-year-old daughter who adored him. He began school at his local community college and planned to transfer to the University of Florida after achieving a degree in forestry. He was looking forward to an internship in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. His girlfriend, Amber Peck, was a bright young student who had moved from Michigan to Florida in order to attend college. She was a huge animal lover and didn't have a mean bone in her body. She was also hardworking and intelligent. She was on the dean's list at Santa Fe Community. Amber planned to be a zoologist and had been awarded a grant to study zoo conservation in Australia. They were both excited to spend some time among the Florida wildlife. John and Amber left Gainesville the morning of the 3rd for their planned overnight camping trip in a remote part of Juniper Springs. That night, they camped in one of Florida's most scenic wonderlands. The setting contained hundreds of tiny bubbling springs bursting from crevices in the earth, hidden beneath a dense canopy of palms and old oaks. The springs are often crystal clear and inviting. Visitors can't help but be amazed by the beauty. The young couple had parked Amber's red jeep in public parking and had hiked a couple miles to the park's more remote camping sections. They made camp on a hillside overlooking Hidden Pond. Vehicles and machines were barred from this section of the forest, and even park employees only used hand tools to maintain the soft, sandy hiking paths, pines, and palm trees. John knew of the special place because the forest was like his backyard. It was a place he often went for some nature and fun. He was eager to share its quiet beauty with Amber. The plan was to spend one night in the park and return home the next day. They had busy lives, after all. No one reported seeing them that night, but we couldn't hear from the silent witnesses, the raccoons, the deer, squirrels, and more. I bet they had a wonderful time getting to know each other better. They certainly had a lot in common. They both loved the outdoors, camping, hiking, exploring in the wilderness, and finding comfort in animals. They both worked part-time jobs and had close families and big dreams. Perhaps they would have gotten married and raised a family together, but they never got the chance. Death is supposed to be a distant idea to young people like Amber and John, and theirs came far too early. Three days went by before Amber and John's family called police. Amber hadn't been heard from by family members since she told her brother that she was going with John on what was supposed to be her first overnight camping trip of many. 
Her family members began conducting a search for her and used GPS technology to track her vehicle. They found her Jeep parked in the public park's parking area at around 8 p.m. Since it was getting late, they couldn't thoroughly search until the next morning, but they set out for Hollow Lake at first light. At 8.30 the following morning, family members discovered the bodies of John and Amber. They'd been shot multiple times. Their bodies had been partially submerged in an overgrown area and in waist-deep water. The police were promptly called and an investigation began. Police began by interviewing all the campers in the area, but the only significant reports they heard were the sound of gunshots around noon the day of the murders, but no one had seen anything. At this point, police had little to nothing to go on. They'd found some spent shells from what appeared to be an automatic rifle, an emptied wallet and camping gear, but that was about it. Police announced the deaths publicly and asked for help from the community. They wanted to know if anyone had seen anything suspicious, and if so, they should reach out immediately. Their plea for help was answered by a man named Joey Tierney. He was a 20-year-old visitor to the park. He reported that he picked up a hitchhiker in the woods the day after the shooting. His passenger told him that he'd been staying in the park the last couple of days, but now he wanted a motel. Tierney had seen the hitchhiker thumbing for a ride. Tierney noticed a limp in the hitchhiker's gait, and although he passed the hitchhiker initially, he felt bad for the man and turned around to pick him up. When Tierney picked the man up, he didn't feel like the man was dangerous, but with what I can only assume to be 20-year-old bravado, he told the man he better not try anything. The hitchhiker was calm and quiet. He smelled bad after living in the woods for a couple days. After Tierney told the man not to try anything, the hitchhiker told him that he had a gun and a knife in his blue nylon bag. This news wasn't surprising or frightening to Tierney. He knew the area well, and he knew many people brought weapons into the park for their own protection. He took the hitchhiker to a convenience store and then to a nearby motel and dropped him off. When he saw the news on TV about the murders, he thought of the man. He called police with his tip, and they went to the hotel and combed through the records. There they found Leo Boatman's name. Five days after the murder, police interviewed him in his home. He told police that, yes, he had been at the park, but he hadn't seen or heard anything. He willingly showed them his bag, which contained a knife and a small pellet gun. He then led police outside to a shed to show them his camping equipment. He was cooperative and outgoing. He told police he had taken the trip to relax, and he mentioned that he had taken some marijuana with him. Officers initially believed that the hitchhiker tip from Tierney was of no real value, especially after seeing the pellet gun. Their luck changed when Leo Boatman's sister, Rosie, told officers that Leo had recently been accused of sealing an AK-47 that belonged to his uncle's neighbor. The neighbor then told a story about how he had an AK-47 and a three-year-old. His parents were coming over, and he didn't want them to see that the AK-47 and the three-year-old were being kept in the same place, so he asked Leo's uncle to keep it for him for a few days. They confiscated the gun and found that the scratch marks on bullets after being fired matched the scratch marks on a slug pulled from one of the victims. When confronted with this evidence, Boatman admitted to the murders. Tierney's tip to the police led them directly to the murderer. 
Thank goodness he took the time to call the police about what he deemed a harmless encounter at the time. His friends and neighbors called him a hero, but Tierney said his days of picking up hitchhikers were over. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Leo Boatman seems to have had the perfect background for someone to become a murderer. He would represent the nurture side of the argument over whether murderers are born or made. Nurture or nature. If you've been a long-time listener, you'll remember episode 16, Evil at Birth. The serial killer Charlie Brandt is a good candidate for the other side of the debated topic. He had an easy life growing up and a loving family, but still felt compelled to kill. Boatman told police that after the shooting, he had hitchhiked to a Holiday Inn, then took a bus home the next day. According to his uncle, Leo marched into his house, smelling terribly of body odor, and telling his uncle that their neighbor needed to come over and get his gun. I guess the hotel stay didn't include a shower, or maybe the rotten stink of murder clings to a person. Interestingly, the AK-47 hadn't come into the house loaded, but now it was. The gun was returned to the neighbor, and Boatman went shopping. He bought the pellet gun and put it in his blue nylon bag, along with his camping equipment. The next day, he attended his first day at St. Petersburg College, acting as if nothing had happened. That evening, he was arrested at home while doing his first day's homework. Hotel records, store receipts, interviews, and ballistic testing clearly tied him to the scene. One of his friends told authorities that he had confessed to her, saying, I went out into the woods and killed someone. When she asked whether he killed a homeless person, he replied, I wouldn't kill a bum because they have nothing to lose. I killed two preppies. In the videotape confession Boatman made to detectives, he was recorded saying, I used to think stuff like that was appalling, you know. I'm not saying, like, I don't care, emotional-wise, or I don't have emotions or whatnot. I'm just saying I don't feel them like I should. He told authorities that it had taken him two hours to hike to Hidden Pond. He was climbing a hill when he saw a guy and girl taking down their tent. The guy was really nice, asking Boatman where he was going. Boatman replied, telling him that he was hiking further in and that the guy helped give Boatman some good directions. Boatman then hung around and watched them carry some of their camping things down the hill while he sat on the hillside. He was thinking he'd take their campsite once they left it. He then took the AK-47 out of his bag and watched the young couple walk back up the hill to get the rest of their camping gear. He raised the gun rifle and aimed at John, and then he thought, what if they see me pointing a gun at them? He said he'd read James Patterson's books and knew the difference a second could make, so he shot John, who fell to the ground. Amber screamed, and then he shot her, but that shot wasn't fatal. Boatman then walked down the hill towards her, put the gun to her head, and shot her again. He then tried to hide their bodies by submerging them, but found the water to be too shallow and the job too difficult, so he just left them. 
Leo Boatman would be tried for double murder. When he went to trial, he was confronted by Amber's father, David Peck. David read a poem his daughter had written about looking forward to her move to Australia to continue college. Amber's father then spoke as if he was Amber, saying, You're such a coward. You hid in the bushes and waited for me and Johnny to approach you. Then you came up to me as I was crying and screaming for you to let me live. Although I only had a flesh wound, you came up to me and put the rifle to my head and pulled the trigger to silence me forever. But you didn't silence my dreams. They'll continue to be heard, long and loud. I will not be silenced. Glenda Peck, Amber's mother, said her daughter would not have wanted Boatman to be put to death. She was far too loving for that. Glenda would also say she hated the fact that Boatman would become well-known for what he did, while his victims would be forgotten. Sadly, I find that to be true when it comes to true crime. I believe it's human nature to be curious about things we don't understand. I'll never understand the mind of a murderer. I can't even understand the minds of my own family members, most of whom I've known their entire lives. In this case, and in many others, nothing could be done for the victims. They certainly couldn't have done anything differently themselves. They were simply in the wrong place, at the wrong time, faced by the wrong type of person. This case reminds me a little bit of Israel Keyes. He would sometimes go into nature with a desire to kill, and it didn't matter who crossed his path. He was that opportunistic. Boatman's public defenders negotiated a life sentence without parole to avoid the death penalty. At the sentencing, Boatman appeared emotionless. With his head down, he said, I can't offer an explanation because there is none. I'm sorry. John's mother, Vicki Parker, called the murder senseless and described her family's horrible, vivid memories of discovering the bodies. She said only one person in this courtroom knows the truth, and he hopefully will spend the rest of his life wondering if it was worth it. I can tell you right now it wasn't. There were very few people in Boatman's Corner, but a man named Steve Shack was one of the few. He temporarily cared for Boatman as a child, and he remembered Leo, at 12 years old, being a loving boy, even though he had had plenty of problems. Steve wanted to adopt the boy, but the state stopped the adoption process because he kept breaking the law and running away from foster care. Steve still considers himself to be Boatman's father, and claims there were eight significant events in Boatman's life that contributed to him becoming a murderer. The first was that he was abandoned by his mother and abused mentally and emotionally by his grandmother and sister. He was called stupid at every opportunity. When he was ten, his grandmother gave him back to the state as a failed adoption, but the state allowed visitation between them anyway. He then became a ward of the state, living in foster homes, some of them abusive, and became a chronic runaway. He was then locked up in juvenile facilities. His welfare caseworker seemed happy to classify everything he did as a felony and wanted to keep him locked up. Boatman said he wanted to be adopted by Steve, but still he ran away from his care at age 13. He spent the rest of his youth in juvenile prisons. Steve even offered to help Boatman upon his release, but according to Steve, Boatman told him to get out of his life. At the trial, Steve told the jurors that he still loved Leo Boatman. He remembered the bright, spunky 12-year-old with a horrendous background and a need to test boundaries. 
He remembered a foster child who complained again and again of severe abuse at the hands of foster parents to no avail. He remembered a delinquent youth who was never given the opportunity of probation, but was instead locked away. Steve cried as he described Boatman's life. Sheriff Ed Dean disagreed with Steve. He reported that deputies had shared that Boatman admitted he had gone into the woods with the sole intention of killing someone. When the opportunity to use someone else's gun arose, Leo Boatman jumped at it. He even told officers that yes, he had feelings, but didn't feel things the same way other people did. He didn't feel bad that he killed those two amazing people who were enjoying the prime of their lives. Sheriff Dean called the killing senseless and had labeled Boatman as a possible serial killer. In fact, detectives wondered if he could be linked to other killings. Most serial killers have been white males in their late 20s to early 30s. Their targets are strangers near their homes or places of work. This fit Boatman's profile. In terms of victim selection, 62% of killers target strangers exclusively, and 71 operate in a specific location or area, rather than traveling wide distances to commit their crimes. That being said, by the FBI's definition of a serial killer, a murderer must have completed three separate murders, separated by a cooling-off period of a few days to a few years. Virtually all serial killers have come from dysfunctional backgrounds involving sexual or physical abuse, drugs, or alcoholism. They are often isolated and resentful towards a society that has shut them out. They see themselves as dominant, controlling, and powerful figures. They believe that they hold the power of life and death in their hands. In their own eyes, they can sometimes perceive themselves as godlike. Leo Boatman hasn't met those parameters completely, but he's on his way. When he went to jail for the double murder, he wasn't done killing. Leo Boatman was placed in the Marion County Jail, where he told another inmate that he was planning to kill deputies and guards if he got the death penalty for killing Amber and John. He was searched, and authorities found a shank he had made out of a piece of metal. The handle was made up of mashed-up toilet paper and dried-up toothpaste and held a six- or seven-inch blade. They think he got it, the metal from a filing cabinet. A couple months later, he got a hold of some disposable razors and attempted suicide twice, but his injuries were not life-threatening. After trying to attempt suicide, he sent a letter to the local newspaper claiming to be tortured by the Marion County authorities. He claimed to have been chained by all four limbs. He was forced to eat with his hands and wear a woman's dress. The bureau chief of the jail countered his complaint, saying that the reason for the four limbs being chained separately was only because he tried to commit suicide, and they were trying to keep an eye on him. Boatman was also placed for a time in a bubble, which was a closed-in glass area where the guards could see him at all times to make sure he didn't try to kill himself again. The guards also stated that Boatman would try to do anything to get out of jail, whether through an attempt at escape or an attempt at death. They didn't want to give him the opportunity to roam free and build friendships within the prison. They didn't want other people to try to help him escape. They also claimed that after Boatman received 12 staples in order to repair the wound from his attempted suicide, they added the four-point restriction to help prevent him from pulling out the staples or trying to use them as weapons. As for the claims he was forced to wear a dress, the truth was 
he was made to wear a suicide gown. This is made out of quilted pieces of fabric, which would prevent him from getting pieces that were big enough to make a noose. After pleading guilty to his charges in Marion County, Boatman was housed in a prison in Punta Gorda. While there, he arranged to share a cell with a man named Rick Morris. Morris was a 28-year-old Panama City man who was serving a life sentence for the murder of his parents. On August 18, 2010, these two men, who were both diagnosed with mental illness, got into a fight and Rick Morris was killed. According to the Florida Department of Corrections records, Leo Boatman planned it all out. Two days earlier, Boatman told another inmate that he was going to kill Morris. The inmate said Leo Boatman preyed on weak people. Allegedly, Leo was angry because he wasn't receiving much mail from the outside, and he wanted to take his anger out on someone, so he began looking and he saw an opportunity when he saw inmate Morris jump on another inmate's back, starting a fight. The fight was quickly broken up, but now Boatman had a target. He asked one of the guards if inmate Morris could be placed in a cell with him, but the request was denied. Boatman then waited for the next shift and asked a different guard if he was going to move Morris to his cell. The guard told him that he would check on it, and if inmate Boatman and Morris got along, he would approve the request. Boatman played the game and cozied up to Morris. That evening, inmate Morris was transferred to Boatman's cell. Boatman admitted that he tried to get Morris into his cell just for the opportunity to try to kill him. Once this was done, he got Morris to talk about the fight. He then told Morris he knew a great move that Morris should have used in the fight he had instigated. Inmate Morris wasn't really interested, but Boatman came up close to Morris and twisted around him while they were standing. He pretended to be showing Morris the move. However, once behind him, Boatman put his head in a headlock and choked the living shit out of him. Those are his words, not mine. Morris was then laid down on the ground, but wasn't dead yet, so Leo Boatman began banging his head into the concrete. His plan had been to tuck Morris into his bed and go on as if nothing had happened the next day. This plan was thwarted when an officer who was making his rounds a little earlier than normal passed by the cell. At this point, Boatman was slamming Morris's head into the concrete. Boatman then began stomping on and kicking at Morris's head. The guard called for help and backup, but by the time they got there it was too late. When questioned as to why he had done it, Boatman told the guards that since he has life in prison and they aren't going to work with him, then he's going to make his time in their fun. He said he has nothing to lose and nothing to look forward to, and they can't do shit to him. I agree with law enforcement who believe that Leo Boatman would have become a serial killer. He still might become one within the walls of prison, or maybe he'll run into someone just like him, who will use him as an outlet for their anger. Amber's mother was right. Sometimes the only reason a person becomes known is because of the crimes they've committed. I certainly wouldn't have heard of Leo Boatman if I wasn't searching for true crime cases. That doesn't mean I admire the man or that I can ever understand him or want to. I certainly don't respect him, and I believe he does deserve to spend all his miserable years in prison. The people I do respect are Amber and John's parents. The prosecutors were ready to seek the death penalty against Leo Boatman, but the victim's family wanted the case to end. They didn't want to suffer through multiple trials and the retelling of grisly details 
and besides that, they believed that boatmen probably wouldn't have been executed in their lifetimes anyway. Like I said earlier, Amber's parents believed she wouldn't have wanted Leo Boatman dead, and so they went with what they believed would be her wishes. They sent him to jail for life. In memory of Amber and John, Santa Fe College offers a scholarship called the Amber Peck and John Parker Environmental Sciences Scholarship, and it's still available for students today. I, for one, am glad that Leo Boatman is off the streets, but it breaks my heart that two promising young students, deeply loved by their families, friends, and fellow students, died at his hands. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Leave a rating or review or follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok. There are links in the show description that will take you to the show's social media platforms. That's also where you'll find the opportunity to sponsor the podcast if you'd like to. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.